There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Okay. Good morning. If you can, please stand with me. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. I'd like to thank everyone who came to my party last night. It was a great time. I appreciated it. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled and escape that night. It has been such a great time this morning, Lord, of fellowship and worship. Now we turn to your word, Lord, and just pray, Father, that all the hearts that are here would be fertile ground for what your word can do in their lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. His name was James Braddock. He was born June 7, 1905, in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. Maybe that's what led him into the life of a heavyweight boxer. He was known for his powerful right hand, his solid chin, and an amazing comeback from a floundering career. For that unlikely feat, he was given the nickname Cinderella Man. But here's the thing. He was regarded for most of his life as a mediocre fighter because he had a great right, but no left. With his family in poverty during the Great Depression, Braddock had to give up for boxing for a little while and then work as a dockhand. But due to the frequent injuries to his right hand, Braddock compensated by using his left hand as he did his job. The result was that gradually his left hand became stronger than his right hand. 
And so the next time that he fought, he now had a weapon that he hadn't had at his disposal before, and that enabled him to become the heavyweight champion of the world. That is kind of what God is doing in Saul's life, or in David's life, I'm sorry. The next ten years, David will be hiding in caves and running from Saul. And so God will figuratively bind David's right hand so that his trust would only be in his God. So that one day, the Lord can make David into Israel's greatest king. And I believe we can learn some very valuable lessons in many different aspects from this chapter. So let's dig in. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan Saul's son delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. We see here in verse 1 that Saul has now taken the gloves off. There is now no more pretense or ambiguity concerning his feelings towards David. Saul tells his servants and his son that he wants David dead And it doesn't care who does it as long as it gets done. This is the Old Testament version of a mafia hit. But there's a problem with Saul's plan. Saul's very own son is David's best friend. The soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. The imagery is of tying two cords together. The same word is used in God instructing the Israelites to bind his word upon their foreheads. Now, if we apply that concept of knitting together of David and Jonathan's soul, it is a picture of the inseparable bond between two close friends. But there is a type of irony here. If you remember last week, King Saul had said earlier, had sent his servants to David with this message, Behold, the king has delight in you. Now, this, of course, was a lie. But in verse 1, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David, it says. Now, this was the truth. He loved him as his own soul, and he had made a covenant with him. Jonathan does this, even though it's hard to imagine how they could be any more different from the world's perspective. It's the friendship between the prince and the pauper. One is a child of the court. The other is a child of the flock. The firstborn aligns himself with the eighthborn. And yet they are connected by God in a, in a way that far surpasses the old stain of blood is thicker than water. The bond between believers is like that, though. Once they came to Jesus and said, Your family is outside waiting and wanting to see you. Jesus pointed to his disciples and he said, These cats are my family now. Your Bible may not say cats, but it's in the BSV, the Bill Scott version, available at fine bookstores everywhere. The point he is making is there is a relationship that far surpasses the natural because death has a way of breaking up our natural relationships down here. But those who are saved are going to be spending eternity in paradise together. That means that you are going to be stuck with me. But don't worry, I'll be changed into a more tolerable sort by the time I get up there. Now, surely Saul knew that Jonathan would probably tell David about this hit. But perhaps that is exactly what the king desired. 
if he couldn't kill David, perhaps he could frighten him so much that he would leave the land and never be seen again. So Jonathan delivers the bad news to David. Because of his love for David, Jonathan tells David something that he would not want to hear. That is the sign of true friendship, by the way. Loving someone enough to tell them things that they may not want to hear. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy is deceitful. Imagine going to the doctor for a checkup. The doctor says to you, You are a magnificent physical specimen. You have the body of an Olympian. You are to be congratulated. But later that day, while climbing the stairs, you have a heart attack. You find out that your arteries were so clogged, you were one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. Incense, you go back to the doctor and say, Why didn't you tell me I was in such bad shape? The doctor says, Well, I knew that your body was in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but if I tell people stuff like that, they get offended. It's bad for business. You might not like me. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. You'd say, Doctor, I could have died. Please always tell me the truth. Do you have friends who speak the truth in love to you? If not, if I were you, I would find some. There are people in my life that I have given permission to and have asked to keep a watch on me and to please immediately tell me if they see an ongoing sinful pattern developing in my life. Now, I love the end of verse 2. David is told to go to a secret place and hide. Maybe David was thinking of this day when he wrote in Psalm 31:20, You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. And sometimes we need to do the same thing. There are times in life when we won't have the strength to lift up the shield of faith, but we still have the ability to lie down underneath it. The great hymn writer Fanny Crosby put it this way, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. If life is hard right now, Let the Lord cover you this morning. Verse 3, please. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. God has put King Saul under judgment because of Saul's wrong orientation of heart. Saul is much more interested in himself than in obedience to God. God has raised up David to be the next king, and David is serving as a servant to Saul right now. But instead of plotting to overthrow Saul, he is patiently waiting for his God to orchestrate the events of his life. Meanwhile, 
Saul's become increasingly jealous of David's success and becomes obsessed with destroying him. But this time Saul comes out in the open with his hostility and demonstrates what a bad idea it is to fight against God. As we look at the story, Saul will try four different times to destroy David, but we will take note of the different ways of which God will act to preserve him. First, God raises up Jonathan as an advocate to reason with the king. Then God will use David's own military skill as David eludes Saul's spears. And next, we'll find out next week that God uses a protector when Michael, David's wife, delays Saul's henchmen when they are chasing David. And finally, next week, we'll see that God will supernaturally intervene by overcoming Saul's henchmen and Saul himself with the Holy Spirit. So we see immediately that God goes to whatever ends necessary to safeguard his interest. In other words, it's a bad idea to go to war with God. However, don't all of us, at one time or another, fight against the will of God? If we're honest with ourselves and spend a little time in self-examination this morning, we'd probably see that that has been the case in our lives. Now, of course, our own fighting against God probably isn't as obvious as Saul's, but it can still be present in our lives. For instance, we may say things like this, I don't want to give up this one part of my life, even though my faith demands it. Or we think, I don't want to examine myself for disobedience because I'm comfortable where I am. We may even say, I don't want to believe what Scripture teaches on this point because I simply just don't like it. Or how about this one? I don't want to act on my faith in this way because people might think me a fanatic. So we too can be in the situation that Saul was in. The question is, what do we do when we find our own selfish schemes thwarted by God himself? The first way that God protected David was through a prince who pled his case. An advocate for David, Jonathan talked to his father about David's situation. Did you know that we also have a prince who pleads our case to the father? He is the prince of peace, Jesus Christ. We are told in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, there is a major difference between Jonathan and Jesus in this aspect. Jonathan pled for David on the basis of David's good works that he slew Goliath. Jesus, on the other hand, pleads not our case on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his works for us. And so Jonathan approaches the king and says this. One commentator I read wrote this. It seems clear that Jonathan had thought about what he would say. His argument was rhetorically vigorous, logically persuasive, morally convincing, and theologically sound. Jonathan pointedly described Saul's intended violence against David as a sin against innocent blood. It would be killing David without a cause. Now that language is absolutely loaded with meaning. We know from the Old Testament that special provisions have been made to avoid the spilling of innocent blood. But when innocent blood was shed, punitive action was required or else atonement was demanded. 
and the fact that Saul had no justification whatsoever for the violence he intended it is reiterated in the expression, without a cause. Of course, hating righteous people for no good reason is nothing new. Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this. This is John 15:25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now consider the contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Saul wanted to kill David, while Jonathan delighted in David. The contrast is sharpened by the fact that whatever danger David posed threatened Jonathan and Saul equally in regard to the right to the throne. Only Saul, however, chose to see David as a threat. But Jonathan instead saw David's goodness. When Jesus came, he encountered the same two responses. Like David, there were those who wanted to kill him. They saw him in one way or another as a threat. Then there were those who loved him. They saw his goodness. Those who hated Jesus were motivated by a similar type of jealous fear. He was better than them in every way, and he called them to a way that was better than their own. So let me ask all of us a question this morning. Do we see the Lord's anointed, Jesus, as a threat to our sinful way of life? Or do we see his goodness that he wants for each of us? That all depends on who's in charge of our life, us or the Lord. Whenever one will is in conflict with another, the decisive question is always going to be, which will will prevail? The strange thing is, though, The will of the stronger does not always have its way. The tiny two-year-old gets his way far more often than many parents would want to admit to. And don't even bring grandparents into the equation. Most grandparents I know would let the toddler burn down the house and then post the picture on Facebook bragging about how their grandchild was so smart to work out the way to use the lighter. Now, this was the beginning of a very unhappy time in David's life. It was a dark and lonely experience, which nevertheless played a tremendous part in the making of David's character. Now, before going further, I would pause to ask you if you're facing something like this this morning. From one quarter or another, the pressure is on you, and it's being applied until it's almost overwhelmed and broken you. But as far as you know, you are clear of any type of guilt. You have done nothing to justify the attack that is now being made upon you. And yet it seems that everywhere you turn, you bump into another problem or a different enemy. Why is that? Well, I've got your good news and your bad news this morning. The good news is I have the answer. The bad news is you're not going to like it. So email Pastor John if this makes you angry because I'm with you on this one. Here it is. Innocence will not always deliver you from danger nor its problems. I told you you wouldn't like it. Many of us think that just being a good person makes us immune from the trials and the tragedies that life brings. 
I know we all think that because the first thing that many of us say when anything really bad happens is, what did I do to deserve this? Well, many times the answer is absolutely nothing. King Saul had it out for David, even though David had never done anything but good for Saul. Now, many of us have the idea that really bad things only happen to really bad people. Ordinary people like us steer clear of danger as much as possible. We figure the further away from trouble that we live, the harder it will be for danger to find us. We play by the rules, try to treat one another right, live and let live, and by doing this, we hope to stay safe and sound in a dangerous world. Does that really work? Well, yes and no. Nobody would deny that living a good moral life will keep you out of much trouble. Living right keeps you away from many dangers that come from doing wrong. But at the same time, doing right does not guarantee deliverance from all aspects of danger. The Bible tells us that even the righteous can expect this world to oftentimes be a very dangerous and hostile place. Here are a few verses you're never going to see on a bumper sticker. Psalm 34:19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. John 16:33, In this world you will have tribulation. And finally, 2 Timothy 3:12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is just how life is. And so we need to learn what to do when the sea of life becomes tempestuous. That's one reason why we gather together every Sunday, to learn together and to support one another. But back to our story. It initially seems that Jonathan's advice has worked. Saul seems to repent and says, As the Lord lives, David will not be killed. And as this chapter progresses, we'll see that Saul's life has now spun completely out of control. And anything that he may say is now suspect. The writer H.G. Wells says of one of his strange characters, Mr. Polly, he was not so much a human being as he was a civil war. That is the perfect description of King Saul at this point. He is what the book of James calls a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. We will see this more and more as Saul declines. Verse 7, please. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with the spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. We do not know how many days, weeks, or months elapsed between verses 8 and 9. In 1 Samuel 16:14, we learn that the evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul as a consequence of the Spirit of the Lord departing from him. The evil spirit was an aspect of God's judgment and rejection of Saul for his disobedience. 
This is kind of like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. And it is initially perplexing there to read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, thus leading to the cruel violence against the children of Israel, until we realize that Pharaoh had been hardening his own heart first. In other words, God's judgment came upon Pharaoh by giving Pharaoh up to his own willful stubbornness and sin. If Pharaoh would harden his heart, then God would harden Pharaoh's heart and achieve his purposes through that heart. The sobering truth of that for us this morning is there is a time in a human life where God will finally cement the choices that we have made. The evil spirit that came upon Saul was a consequence of his setting himself against the Lord and against his anointed. God gave him up to his choice then, just as he sometimes gives up sinners to their own ways, according to Romans chapter 1. So what does Saul do yet again? It says he threw his spear at David, hoping to pin him against the wall, and yet he misses once again. Listen, I know a lot of musicians, and most of them look like me, or even worse. How hard can it be to hit a musician with a spear? But I want us to pay particular attention to that phrase that he sought to pin David to the wall. Now, why would I mention that? Listen to what happens to Saul after his death. This is 1 Samuel 31.8. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news of the house of their idols into the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and listen to this, and they pinned his body to the wall in Bethshan. Do you know what that teaches us, my friends? It's the principle of Galatians 6-7, which proclaims this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. Saul's desire is to pin David to the wall, but instead it is he himself who will someday suffer that same fate. I think of Haman, who was hung on the very gallows that he had built for his enemy Mordecai. Let us all be very careful when it comes to wanting to exact revenge over our enemies. Let us be like David, who instead of pulling the spear out of the wall and throwing it back at Saul, he instead refused to touch the Lord's anointed. Maybe we could say at this point, David was being spirit-led. Spirit-led. There's no punchline. We will see that David will never return to Saul's court. For the rest of David's life, he's going to be on the run from King Saul. And sometimes fleeing from danger is the best possible course of action. We see that David did all that he could to gain Saul's trust, but when that failed, he finally fled and escaped. Tried as he wanted to, David could not slow or stop the madness that was coming upon King Saul. But notice, he did not blame Jonathan for having such a father, the soldiers for having such a boss, and even Saul himself for issuing such an order. 
He believed in the goodness of man's heart, but he also believed in the ravages of sin, the depravity of man, and the corruption of power. The madness of King Saul is now in full swing. One minute he listened to his son, the next minute he listened to no one. One minute he thought David was an asset, the next he thought he was a liability. One commentator wrote, David did not want to stoop to the king's level. He must soar to new heights. Defeating the weakened king who had lost his head, his heart, and his health would not make David a better man. He did not want to follow in Saul's footsteps to be mad, moody, melancholy, manipulative, malicious, and murderous. That was quite the alliteration of the letter M, wasn't it? I can never be that clever. But please notice, in Saul's hand was an instrument of hurting, while in David's hand there was an instrument of healing. I guarantee you there has been or will be a situation in your life very similar to this. You'll have a choice to feel threatened and to throw spears or to rejoice and help others to excel. Now, if you try to keep someone down, you yourself will spiral downward yourself. But if you help, like Jonathan did, someone go up higher, you will find yourself on an upward path as well. And so I encourage all of us, on a daily basis, let go of the spear and pick up the harp. And once again, what has David done to deserve this treatment at the hands of Saul? Absolutely nothing. He was entirely innocent of any type of wrongdoing. In fact, while David was on the run from Saul, was when David wrote many of the psalms and songs that we have in the book of Psalms. I invite you this week to sometime read Psalm 142, which was written by David when he was hiding from Saul in one of the caves. Now, we wouldn't have psalms like this if it wasn't for David's hard experiences. There is a continuity from Saul's attempt to drive a spirit through David to the crowds who cried out concerning Jesus, crucify him, to even the threats of those who oppose the gospel this day. You may be thinking, that's a nice little story, but I'm pretty sure I don't have to concern myself with anybody throwing a spear at me. Actually, that is simply not true. Listen to Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the the evil one. The interesting thing is that Greek word for arrow comes from a root word that means to throw or kick over inside the sanctuary. (laughs) That's not in my notes either. (laughs) And so in closing... And so that verse teaches us that whether we believe it or not, there will be times in our life where the enemy will send an arrow going by our head. Now, I hate to be Captain Bringdown, but I want to remind us once again, this world is not a playground. It truly is a battleground. And we need to be prepared at all times for a skirmish to break out in our lives. That is just life, my friends. When it comes to trials and tribulations, it has been said there is a board for every behind. Or as that great theologian Tom Cruise said in all of just a, just a few good men, and the hits just keep on coming. 
In closing, what have we learned from the life of David this morning? Here are some principles for you when people start chucking spears at you. Principle number one. When someone throws a spear at you, you might want to write this down, duck. That is simply brilliant. Principle number two. Like David, when the spears are flying, this is what we should do. We should keep doing well. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap the reward if we do not grow weary. Basically, you can't live life by how you feel. You can't live life as a response to whether people treat you right all of the time. You have to do right simply for the sake of doing right. Or as my old black pastor used to say, holiness is its own reward. And finally and most importantly, when the spears won't stop coming, stay close to the Lord. Because perhaps, like David, God is using these experiences to build your character and refining you in the furnace of difficult circumstances. God used David's circumstances with Saul to build David's character and faith so that one day he could become the king that he would become. He could face the difficult circumstances that came along with that because he had already been through the fire. And he'd already learned how to lean upon God in the really tough times. We would all be wise to emulate that this morning. And Father, I know that life can be just incredibly hard. I've heard things this week, Father, from some people even in this room, just how hard life can be. And we are not immune from that because we are your children, Lord. But we do have something that those who don't have you have. We have a relationship with you. And we know, Lord, that even the bad things that happen to us, you somehow work them together for our good. I pray you would just hammer that truth home in our lives this morning. And for everyone in here, Lord, wherever they are with you, I just pray you would reveal yourself to them in such a mighty way that they would leave here changed this morning. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.